Hello and welcome to the Adam Ruins Everything podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. This is a podcast where I talk to some of the most fascinating people in the world about some of the most fascinating topics in the world. You might have heard of my TV show, Adam Ruins Everything, on True TV. If you haven't, check it out at truetv.com slash Everything or watch clips and episodes on the Watch True TV app. On that show, I tell you the awful truth about everything you never wanted to have to need to know. I think something like that's one of our taglines. I forget. Anyway, on that show... I talk to these awesome experts for like eh, 90 seconds, two minutes. On this podcast, I talk to them for a whole lot longer, and we really get into it. Today's guest is John Bohannon, a science journalist who appeared on the nutrition episode of Adam Ruins Everything, where we talked about the flaws in science journalism and especially nutrition journalism. This guy is so fascinating. He's he's really a really interesting person. He's a PhD. He's a science journalist, a contributing correspondent at Science Magazine, writes for other magazines like Wired, but he also has such a cool approach to science and journalism and the problems with both of them. Uh, He's always doing the most fascinating projects and stunts to highlight the issues in science and in science reporting and in journals. And he's also just got this really like fascinating, wide ranging mind. Uh, I don't know. He's one of my favorite people to talk to uh, when we were off set. So I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation. And uh, so here it is. Let's take it away. Well, I am here with John Bohannon. How you doing, John? Good. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So you were on the nutrition episode of the show where uh, the main thing I want to talk about, because this is I get a lot of questions about this, is the fake paper that we had published, the script for the episode that we had published in a fraudulent medical journal, which basically you helped us arrange and put together. Can you sort of walk through how that process went? Yeah, um, it was shockingly easy. Uh, <laughs> but maybe maybe the more shocking thing is that I actually wasn't shocked. Like, I am no longer shocked by how easy it is to uh, print pretty much anything you want in something that looks like a journal. Like, the malfeasance of the journal industry is so huge that it's not even, like, a black market thing where you got to know a guy. You can just straight up do it. Totally. It's it's super easy. So Yeah, so what was the process? Well, I just want to say, to be fair to the journal industry, it's it's not that the whole thing is totally corrupt. It's more like there still is this same old core of reputable journals that are doing what they should. It's just that there's this huge cottage industry of bad guys that have kind of grown on the fringes. Yes. And because of the internet, they're they're totally easy to find. And so you can get this false sense that the entire scientific, you know, edifice is corrupt to its core. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. But as we demonstrated on the show, it's actually really easy to fool the public. You can you can get anything you want published. It, it's kind of this thing where there's yeah there's the old like science and nature and and the you know whatever the good ones that are being published by universities and then there's an enormous sort of waiting pool full of shit of like these bad journals that are just like money making schemes that are sort of par- you know being parasites yep. on the rest <laughs> of the journal industry. Correct. Totally, and uh, it, it's kind of like the internet itself. It's like there's plenty to trust on the internet. But there's also just 10 times or a thousand times more crap that you can, you know, get scammed by. Right. And the problem is when journalists can't tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys and are just taking whatever shitty information and running with it. Yeah, exactly. So how do we make this happen? Okay. So when we first started talking about this episode, we were thinking of doing like uh, maybe a fake study, kind of like I did with the chocolate hoax uh, way back in the day. And... What finally emerged with your clever writing team is, hey, why don't we just get the show itself published as a scientific (laughs) paper in the most bizarre meta, like, 
you know, statement on the problem itself. Right. We literally took the script to the episode and we converted it just formatting wise into a paper. Like I think we made up a title. Yep. We made up an abstract. The authors were your name, my name, and Eliza Skinner's name, the writer of the episode. But then everything else was just copy and pasted dialogue and stage directions from the script in paragraph form rather than in script form. And then I think we yeah. made up what, two charts? Like there was a yeah, chart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there were two bogus charts, and that's it. And What's totally, and we used our real names. Yeah, and and, and by the way, this was published, and we have a PDF of it. I think it, I think the journal maybe never took it down. If they did, whatever, we're going to figure it out, and we'll put a link no, to they it did. in the show notes. I think they did take it down. They did take they it did down because they down. figured out that we had that we had conned them. Um, but yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out yourself. Adam, did you ever get your money back? Because you had to pay some money to get that published. <laughs> You know, the budget of the show was – it's not my money. It's uh, Ted Turner's money at, at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that Turner being our parent company, if you guys aren't familiar with, with media conglomerate uh, structure. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was – I mean, I think it was worth it for the for the demo. I, it was like a couple hundred bucks maybe? Yeah, yeah, something like that. It's not that bad to prove a scathing point about uh, problems in uh, the, science, the science journal world. So we took that paper and then what do we do with it? Yeah, so – we we took the script of a show about sham journals and we submitted it to a sham journal <laughs> and, and and it really only took a matter of days before uh or like a week before basically the the wheel started turning and i got an email back saying your paper is uh, has been accepted you know there's like no review process <laughs> Yeah, but and, but uh, accepted implies someone has read it. There's like a panel of judges, and they said, mm-hmm, "Yes, okay, we find this one worthy." But <laughs> exactly the, the content of the paper was so ludicrous because it was literally a script pointing out about this very topic. If a single person had read a sentence of it, they would have no like not even a judge. Just if like a small child or a dog had read a sentence <laughs> of this, they would have known not to publish it. Okay, I see three scenarios here. One is like no one actually read it. And and it just like it just is getting fed into this like money making machine. Right. And we're just getting automatic emails. Yes. It's just a bot. Yeah. Scenario two is that someone actually read it and knew it was a scam, but was like, eh, this this scam isn't gonna last long. It's a couple hundred bucks, I'll take it. Like who do who but, do I care? They they live in like Russia or something like that. They exactly. don't have, they, they don't have they're like, I don't care if I'm exposed, whatever. And they could just make another fake journal like next weekend. It's so easy to do. But scenario number three really intrigues me, which is like there's someone with a really philosophical bent and a sense of humor who realized (laughs) that this was a paper about a problem and suddenly had a turn of heart and was like, I got to take part in this moment. (laughs) Maybe a fan of your show. (laughs) Well, the show hadn't come out yet when we did it. So (laughs) yeah, but a fan of your show generally. (laughs) And so we just we just uh, so we just submitted it. We got the acceptance, and then they just published it, right? Yep, it came out on the internet. Yep, and uh, I actually sent a link to the paper to a colleague of mine just to like lock it in, like so that there could be no doubt that it actually was a published paper on the internet. Right. We took screenshots and, and everything. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. And and so when it was published, I mean, it went on a website, but I believe it also ended up sort of, am I wrong that it ended up being cataloged in a couple of like, you know, databases of papers, like many of the things that happened to a legitimate paper sort of happened to this paper. Am I right or wrong about that? You're, you're both, you're right, but um, it didn't get into the databases that really quote unquote matter to like librarians. You know, none of, none of the, the major 
uh, databases that uh, libraries use. Got it. It's not on JSTOR or anything like that. Exactly. It didn't get that far. But it looks legitimate enough that, and here's the point, you can, you know, we can cite it. We cited it on the show as though it were a real paper. You could, you know. You could you... publish future papers and keep citing it. Right. We could pu- we could publish another paper that cites our initial first paper, which, again, was, you know, total nonsense. But, you know, the, the reason it was a demo was we published a script of the episode, which contains no information whatsoever. But someone could publish like a false study that is designed to get press or designed to support some nefarious cause or they could do it for any number of reasons. And then they could publish another paper that cites that paper and they could sort of build like an entire sort of shadow scientific field by doing this, I sub- if yeah. they were so inclined. <laughs> totally. That's like the extreme case. I think the more common case is people padding fake CVs. Yes. That, that's why most people are using these fake journals. Uh, before we started working with you, I had heard about this problem. And I sort of heard of it phrased as like a supply and demand problem where you had all of these – you have all these sort of PhD students – uh, coming up who need papers published or people at various lower rungs of the academic ladder who need papers published and they need, you know, uh, citations in their CVs, but it's very, very hard to get an article published. So this uh, sort of shadow journal world emerges of people who say, well, OK, I'll publish your paper if you pay me a little bit extra, pay me a couple hundred bucks. So there yep. is almost a little bit of a need that's being served, except that it's just being served fraudulently. Yeah, no, it's a big need. And I'm not so worried about the um, low-level academics who are padding CVs. Mm -hmm. The ones that worry me are like, you know, someone in like the Department of Agriculture in Zambia, you Mm -hmm. know, just some random government building in some random country where, um, you know, things are just getting started. There isn't a long tradition of knowing whether someone's CV actually means something in a particular field. Like, there's a lot of really nuts and bolts institution building happening around the world right now. Things are are growing fast. Right. And so the fallback is, well, uh, how many papers have you published? Like, give me a number. And, you know, that counts for something. And you you end up with people in power, you know, who don't actually have the skills that they say they have. Right. So you're talking about, say, a developing nation that doesn't have a mature university system yet and is in the process of building one. But, you know, this sort of system ends up enabling sort of frauds or incompetent people to sort of put themselves in positions of power because they could represent to, you know, say the, the non-scientifically literate in their in their society. Hey, look at all these papers I've, have, I've had published. I should sure be the president of uh, uh, whatever university in whatever yep. small country. And more insidious than that is the effect it has on the next generation. Because, you know, imagine your mentor, you know full well that your mentor essentially bought his way into the position to some extent with sham papers, because there's a quota system, you know, you have to publish a paper, uh, you know, every, every six months or something, let's say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're in a fix, you can always just cough up a few hundred bucks and get it done. Well, that practice is going to carry over and you have this really corrupt effect. Wow. So, yeah, it's not even just about the individual people or the individual studies. It's about the entire culture of the system at that point. Yeah. So that's that's the level at which I think real harm happens because of these sham journals. But I think it's slow and insidious. Yeah. Is there? uh, Yeah, because you you almost man, because here's here's the argument, as I understand it. I think we discussed this on set a little bit that like, you know, you can hear this uh, argument about the sham journals and say, well, this indicts science overall. Like if there's sham journals, we can't trust scientists anymore. And I think the argument against that would be, well, you 
you're not supposed to simply trust scientists. You're supposed to look at what they said and verify it and reproduce their experiments. And then the entire community comes to sort of a consensus over what work is valid. Uh, and that's how science works. The existence of bad work doesn't like negate the enterprise entirely. In fact, the whole enterprise is premised on the idea that there's going to be bad work that's going to be falsified. So it's not that big of a deal. But uh, I mean, you, you'd agree with that, right? Yeah, I totally. But uh, let me throw a counter argument at you. Tell me, sure. tell me if you buy this. I'm going to argue that science is actually possibly better because of these sham journals. Or really? more to the point, like, yeah, ch- check it out. So these sham journals might be a symptom of a system that is just growing so fast and becoming so competitive that you're getting all of these weird effects on the, on the fringes. Mm. But the real story here is that science as an enterprise has gotten just massive. And that means that, but you know, back in the day when you could just rely on someone's reputation, like, oh, so-and-so, he's at a fancy university. Oh, so-and-so is, you know, publishing in the one journal that matters in Mm -hmm. this field. Uh, You could just take it as gospel, whatever they said. But, you know, nowadays, if someone publishes something in a major journal, that means they've really jumped through flaming hoops to get there. Um, because there are like tons of other people and tons of other journals competing for the same stuff. It's just mm. like, and also like, there's just like hugely more money, billions of dollars being pumped into like research at a national scale and an international scale. And so that's a, that's a huge change compared to even just like 200, 150 years ago. And, you know, you've got, like you said, this huge glut of PhDs, you know, like the best brains are just flooding into this. Um, whereas they used to just flood into industry. You know, industry jobs used to be essentially where our best minds went. And so maybe science is actually in a much better place and it's moving much, much faster. We're making much more, we're covering more ground in terms of like shining light on the universe, revealing what wasn't known before. But, you know, there are side effects of this crazy growth. It's like, you know, adolescence, you're getting acne. (laughs) Right. And so these journals are a symptom of how, vibrant and how much activity there is that they're basically that there's scientific activity going on that doesn't have a place to go and so it ends up in these sham fraudulent journals yeah or it's a side effect of of, of this massive growing economy of knowledge do you buy that that's like the most optimistic take i can come up with <laughs> and and to be fair that's a side effect of something good that's not to say that these sham journals are good for science if we exactly. got rid of them it would be better but it speaks to the overall, you know, size and scale of what's happening in science right now. Totally. So the question is, do you buy that? That's like my most optimistic <laughs> take. I mean, I, I think I buy that, um, uh, you know, as long as the problem is tamped down. I mean, that's what I was getting at was that, like, I can imagine in the U.S., you know, we could say, well, this is not the biggest deal because a real scientist can tell the difference between good research and bad research and only the good research lives as much as is possible. And, you know, we accept that science is an imperfect system that, you know, more and better knowledge will come out of over time. Right. Uh, that yeah. that makes sense in the scientific world that I grew up in. But I think the case that you're making is that that you made earlier is that in, you know, say a developing nation or a place with a less mature system or uh, et cetera, that it could be much more harmful than that. Yeah. Yeah. No, indeed. That's that's where the, the harm is actually happening in real time. Well, I'm here talking to science journalist John Bohannon. We will be back in a moment after this commercial break. So stick around. 
three of you enter a cave of a big red dragon and is standing over a hoard of precious golden rubies. And he says, what do you do, adventures? I'm a dragon man. I cast fire on him. It's very good. I address the red dragon to say, us, we're the hosts of The Adventure Zone, a podcast about family playing Dungeons and Dragons. Very good synergy. Commit to the bit. I, I, <laughs> I roll to charm new listeners. It is very effective <laughs> against all odds. Everybody, we're the Macroids. We host the Adventure Zones, a podcast where we play Dungeons and Dragons together. It's a comedy podcast. We don't take the rules too seriously because there's a lot of them and we did not take the time to learn them. Maybe listen to us. We come out every other Thursday on the Maximum Fun Network. You can find us on iTunes or on MaximumFun.org. I think this promo is a critical hit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am talking to John Bohannon. Also the place that you drew attention to uh, in your own work, and this is the work that that brought us to you in the first place when we were sort of investigating this issue and said, oh, we should do this on the show, is you've really highlighted the role of the press and how uh, you, you know unscrupulous scientists slash journals are able to basically use this system. Look, it's not going to fool uh, – you know, Dr. Mega expert at uh, high physics university, but uh, it's a, you know, these sham journals have a much easier time pulling the wool over the eyes of the science reporter at the Huffington Post. Um, yeah. And, and you demonstrated that very vividly with a fake chocolate study, which I believe we referenced on the show, but we don't go into it in much detail. Can you tell us about yeah. that? Yeah. So the, you know, if the harm in the developing world from sham journals is like this insidious corruption uh, on the generation scale and like putting people in power who don't actually have the competency they need in the Western world and in, in like my world, I think the impact like on a daily basis is happening when people change their diet or decide to go on and off meds or just do something like self-helpy. And when you dig into where they got this information, very often, in fact, too often, it's basically fake science or just really, really bad science, hmm. which has been amplified by the media into like a thing, you know, like, um, most recently it was like bacon is going to kill you. You remember that cover uh, of time? Vaguely. I, I have, I have such whiplash on bacon. People have been going back and forth on it so much. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's what I see as like the immediate, you know, truth on the ground harm from this in our part of the world. It's, Basically, journalists not doing their job. Yeah. They, they, like, take crappy science and they just, like, blow it up into a headline, usually with some kind of uh, catchy self-help kind of um, mm -hmm. advice attached. And that just translates. People, like, immediately um, take these as, as gospel and, and change their lives, sometimes for the worse. Yeah, it's and, a, it is shocking how often I, you know, hear people come in and, you know, just people in conversation will be like, uh, oh, I'm I'm staying away from kale now. Didn't didn't you hear? It's bad for you now, or some just some food that they read one thing about. Um, and then the converse is the sort of more. I think it's more pernicious when it's saying that something is bad because you'll also just see like, oh, eating fish can reduce cancer or whatever. And you know, I don't know if people are actively going out and buying a ton of fish, you know, as a result of that. But you know, it, it seems like everyone's trying to avoid some specific nutrient. Um, and when you say crappy science. Like, how crappy are you talking about? Are you saying, like, ah, oh, it's got a bad sample size? Or are you like, this is not even uh, a, a real researcher? This is not, you know, one of yeah. those not a real study? 
so there's a whole range. Uh, when you dig into the most popular like health fads, often there's no science at all. You, you, you dig and dig and dig and you find this circular reference fest where people are just saying, oh, yeah, this information comes from blah. And then you go to blah and it's like, oh, this information came from them. And hmm. it's just like it's just it just vaporizes. But sometimes there and often there's actually a study, some study uh, that's being quoted. And that's what I try to do with this chocolate thing. So I tried to recreate uh, a really typical case of bad science that gets translated into headlines. So in a nutshell, what we did was we we did a real study. We were totally honest about this. We recruited them in Germany on Facebook and we put them on different diets, one of which included a chocolate bar each day. And uh, by the end of the study, we had demonstrated that if you eat chocolate, uh, you lose weight. And we published the paper in a fake journal. And uh, <laughs> we put out a press release and we even hired people to promote this new discovery. We like the Internet is full of people who will do anything. So we we hired a <laughs> rap artist. We made a rap about chocolate. We hired a, a very, a very talented young woman who did an acoustic ballad about how it changed her life when she started eating chocolate. And, um, and then we put it out on the newswire and it totally got picked up within days uh, by all these newspapers, magazines and even TV uh, talk shows. Wow. Yeah. I, I remember we, we saw clippings from them. It was, I mean, Huffington Post, like I said, a lot of places just, oh, chocolate can be good for your health. I mean, that's such media crack right there. What what outlet is not going to publish that? But the, totally. but the study itself, I want to be clear, was was flawed, right? It was not a good study. Right. So I wanted to do something where when I caught everyone uh, in the act of uh, overhyping this this crap, that they couldn't say, yeah, but it looked like science. Like we couldn't we couldn't have been expected to yeah, catch this because so, you don't want to, you don't want to do a trick that's so good that they couldn't have been expected to know it. Then you're just an asshole because you exactly. fooled, you fooled some people who were trusting you. So it, exactly. it, it had to be a, you had to fl- make the flaws. The flaws had to be in such a form that a responsible journalist would notice, correct? Yeah, exactly. And so what I did was uh, the main flaw is that nowhere in the paper do I even say how many people were involved. And the answer, if you really dig into it, is 16 people. Mm -hmm. And here's a little like math trick uh, that you can do yourself at home. (laughs) If you get a small number of people, I'm not even kidding, you should try this. Get a small number of people. You can do it with your family. Collect a ton of data about them. It doesn't matter what data, just some data, height, weight, uh, you know, ask them on a scale of 10 how their sleep was. Uh, you can you can just measure anything, anything numerical about them over time. Yeah, do it for a couple of weeks like we did. And then there's just a simple statistical test where you compare one thing to the other and you say, is this thing affecting this other thing? In our case, we wanted to know if like... The group that was like had one difference between the rest, which was that they were eating chocolate, did something change about them? And the answer was, well, they're slightly lighter by the end of it. They they had like <laughs> kind of lost a little bit of weight, ten percent, or they lost weight ten percent faster. And uh, it met this test that's called uh, statistical significance. It's just like it's a little number called p, yeah, the p value. And if that p value is small enough, if it's under generally point zero five then that's the result is called statistically significant and we met that criterion but here's the here's the the dirty math trick you are almost always going to get something statistically significant if you measure a shit ton of things about a small number of people hmm. and the reason is that each one of those little tests that you're doing has a small chance of being wrong being a false positive hmm. it looks significant but it's not 
And how, how do I know that? Because if you repeated the whole thing again, you know, same people, but you repeat the same experiment, you would get a totally different answer. Right. So that shows you that's just a false positive. It's just it's a like, it's just a little bit of statistical noise because you sampled such a small amount at that moment. You, you got a statistically significant answer, but it would if it wouldn't be repeatable. Totally, and and that means that it's probably not reality. <laughs> and uh, you know the the sad truth is that the easiest explanation of our result that chocolate helps you lose weight is that accidentally there were more women in one group than the other, and women do this thing called menstruation where just. For no interesting reason at all, their weight fluctuates over the period of a month. Ah. And the experiment only lasted a few weeks. So go figure. So so you just – yeah, so you happen to – because of – I mean that's what a small sample size does. Because of that sort of random bit of variance, you ended up with an effect that didn't mean anything. But really it, it could have been anything at all. It, when you have a sample size that small, you're just going to get these big swings that mean nothing naturally. Is that the point? Yep. That's it. It's funny so how the, you, the two you factors even said – yeah. You even said they could lose 10% of their weight or they could lose weight 10% faster. Saying one person lost weight 10% faster than another person could mean so little if they've lost one pound and the other person's lost 1.1 pound or something like that. Those sound yeah. so similar, but the meaning between them is is vast. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the problem that I was hoping to demonstrate with this bad chocolate study is that these statistical tests are really finicky and they they're so easy to misuse but like even scientists misuse them all the time hmm. it's it's really easy to do and so how can we expect journalists to to know the difference and the answer is well okay journalists you have to do due diligence you have to do some simple things like if you don't understand what a p test is or like you don't understand science well enough to check that we even said how many people we tested well at the very least you need to phone in like for a source, right? You need yeah. at the very least you need to call an expert, have them read the paper and say is this bullshit. <laughs> and none of the journalists who covered this paper did that. Right. Not a single one. And my understanding would be uh that you know the flaws in your study are flaws that a scientifically literate person, right? Someone who's scientifically literate to any degree probably should have been able to detect them, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Any scientist really who has ever published a paper. Got it. Like, like my sister, for instance, is a is a she has a, a PhD in physics, but she's now doing science journalism at uh, uh, Science News. And you know, she's a physicist. She doesn't know that field, but if she were to look at this paper, she would say, "Oh, this sample size versus this p value. This is clearly you know no good, and I'm not going to write about this." Oh yeah, she would smell this a mile away. <laughs> and so, uh, but it sounds like you know one of the problems is that, especially when it comes to health and nutrition facts, that you sort of have. In a lot of cases, this is just my sort of assumption, and you know maybe it's a little bit based on stereotype, but that the people writing those pieces are are you know almost lifestyle reporters who are you know sort of looking for a fun breezy piece, and you know not only are they not scientifically literate, they're not even you know considering their job to be to you know uncover uh, malfeasance in the science industry. No, you're totally right. It's it's basically the ghetto of science journalism. Yeah. If you're on the like nutrition and health beat. It's kind of the worst of the worst. Uh, and, and like you said, it's kind of like become a lifestyle section rather than a science section, even though like the crazy thing is that the human body, you know, when you eat something rather than another thing, like what effect it has on you, that is the most complicated science of all. Right. Like that is more complicated than astrophysics. You right. wouldn't think so. But we actually have a better idea of what makes stars big and fat than what make people big and fat. <laughs> 
that's incredible. I mean, that's that's an incredible way to put it. And but it's also definitely true. I mean, you get the sense when you know, honestly, if you try to find out any piece of information uh, about how humans, especially process food, I mean, let alone the rest of health and and medicine, but if you're even if you're just looking at nutrition, it seems like one of the fuzziest. Science, like that the difficulty of the field is so high because, you know, people's bodies are so different and the foods that they're ingesting are so enormously complex. And this and the systems that are processing the food and, you know, I mean, like you said, you know, hormones affect it. Uh, you know, the actual intake of food affects it. The uh, We the affect amount- each other just to make it even more complicated. Yeah. Like uh, one of the more interesting findings in this in this really weird, hard field is that, for example, obesity is something you can kind of catch from someone. Hmm. If you look at, at social uh, networks, you can actually see the contagion of health features. Uh. So like uh, smoking and, and obesity, these things seem to have a network effect. And wow. that goes to show that it's not you can't just treat any one person as an island. We're all affecting each other. And the, and the other thing that makes this field, aside from all the complexity you just noted, what makes it so hard to do as science is, like, you just can't treat people like lab rats. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if you really want to understand the connection between diet and health, you have to have either prisoners or <laughs> you have to have, like, a multi-billion dollar project that just incentivizes people to let you totally control their lives. And that just doesn't happen. Right. Yeah, I've heard reference to, you know, there'll be studies. I'm trying to remember uh, what study it was. And for some reason, the the word nurse is coming to mind that there was. Yep. uh, Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, totally. The nurses study. This is one of the biggest ever. Um, Just thousands and thousands of nurses uh, agreed to be tracked longitudinally over time, a very long time, decades. And they kept track of, you know, what they were eating. Of course, the nurses had to just tell the scientists what they were eating. So it's uh, self-reporting, which has its problems. Yeah. And then they they tried to find out what were the health outcomes. So and then they did stats on it. So, you know, it's like, well, uh, do the nurses who have this feature end up getting heart attacks less often? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do nurses with this kind of diet end up having these problems? And the, the sad thing is after all that work, and it was a huge amount of work, they got no clear answers about diet and health. <laughs> God damn Seriously, it. no clear answers. They could not even like say with certainty or even confidence whether a high fat diet or a low fat diet is like better for health. Oh Jesus! It was so annoying. Yeah, that's so frustrating. That that would be. I, I think the reason it stood out to me was I had heard of it. Yeah, as being one of the largest studies ever, and. The fact that it would come out as so inconclusive when literally it was for decades. You have researchers who are, you know, a man is, uh, you know, starting this study when he's 25 and he's finishing it when he's 60 or whatever. Yeah. Like it's like that's it's it's a life's work careers. Yes. Um, And and the result of the study would be like, well, we can't really say A or B. (laughs) Right. I mean, all we can really say, and this is this is the frustrating thing. All we can say is that there is no smoking gun. It's Mm. like, you know, if there really were this uh, smoking gun with diet, like if you eat this or don't eat this, we can tell you with high confidence that you are or aren't going to die of X. Like if that existed, we would have found it. Mm -hmm. And that's nice, I guess. (laughs) 
It's nice to know that. <laughs> well, so let me let me ask you this, and and I think I can phrase this both as a question the audience wants to know the answer to, and one that I want to know the answer to. How do we go about parsing these studies? Because it's look, I'll give you an example. We we this year we didn't do it for the show for this upcoming season, um, uh, but we tried to. We had read a lot of interesting stuff about how exercise doesn't really cause you to lose weight. That exercise is not. You know, mm. it, it's great for health, but it's, you know, not that great for weight loss. And we were like, that sounds like a perfect topic for the show. Um, let's uh, get into it and we'll do a whole episode on diets and losing weight and how, you, you know, and how difficult it is. And then the more we looked into it, the fuzzier it got because, yeah. you, you know, we were like, well, hold on a second. Some people do lose weight, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, diet doesn't work, exercise doesn't work, be happy with your body. That was our general arc for the episode. But then th- then we're like, wait, some people lose weight, so <laughs> and they and some do it by exercising. Like, so how do we parse the difference between A and B? And then, wait a second, this study that we were putting, you know, uh, resting this on, that, that one's a little bit fishy and, and et cetera. You know, if, if someone sees that article, right, it was a big thing. Vox did it, so, which is where we originally saw the idea. And they, they source stuff pretty well, um, at least as far as science articles go but so they say Mm -hmm. you know exercise doesn't cause you to lose weight how how are we as you know media consumers to take that information um how how do we do our due diligence and what effect should we let it have on our lives well uh, i think the top level advice is don't go looking for an easy answer when it comes to diet and health because Mm. we're just not there yet as a science so you know, you just have to accept that you're not going to get a satisfying answer at the end of your exploration. Oh. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't explore and that doesn't mean you should just ignore all the research and that, you know, all the research we're doing is, is useless. It's just really hard science. Yeah. And we're just like nibbling at the edges. So, you know, right now, all the, all the talk is about uh, glycemic index. You heard this one yet? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah I mean, so, I've heard about that where people say this is a low glycemic index food that isn't. Yeah. So, now, you know, nowadays, like, uh, we're starting to to have new ways to measure the impact of food on your health at a really small time scale. It's like you, you put this in your mouth, you chew it up, it goes in your stomach, and then something happens to your blood. And that something that happens is is related to something called the glycemic index. It's like how much sugar actually gets pumped into your blood at what rate? And that turns out to be really important for things like diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're starting to actually get numbers that are more meaningful than just your BMI. Like, you know, how heavy are you for your height? For a long, long time, that's the only measurement that we really kind of had to start to try and make sense of all these, you know, wires coming yeah, in and out of this black box, which is your body And it's not a great weight. measurement. It's not. It's really the crudest approximation. So, you know, we're starting to, to make progress on the mechanisms, because that's what you really need ultimately is... It's not just like, you know, food goes in and weight change comes out. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's just not enough information. It turns out to be super complicated. So, so now we need, to, we need to actually hack this thing, tar- start teasing apart the wires and figure out what actually is making the change. So it, it, it's almost as though we're finally starting to do in the nutrition science or the science of health, like the very basic science that will one day allow us to perhaps draw broader conclusions but yep. it it's the so maybe as a piece of advice it's almost look for the the more basic the science the better when you're hearing it about nutrition i mean like <laughs> i mean <laughs> sort of i mean, if if what you're after is like what should i do 
in my daily life <laughs> at this point like don't turn to science like because i have to say at this point when it when it comes to like food and exercise yeah and lifestyle um I actually went to a conference uh, where the goal of the conference was to reach something called a consensus document. So it was like all the brightest minds, you know, or a bunch of them yeah. uh, in a room trying to figure out what can we say in what terms we of what you should on? eat. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that came out was so watered down, it was <laughs> it was almost like meaningless. And And all it really said was, essentially, we know that a mixed diet of fruits and vegetables uh, in moderation is the way to go. <laughs> Like, uh, that's like, how long have you been saying that? Have you made no progress since the 1920s? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, well, that's very distressing to know that this entire field is basically we can't learn anything from it at the present moment. But I'm glad to know that. I mean, at least having that skepticism is better than, than you know, tilting at windmills and, and uh, trying to avoid foods unnecessarily it's just so the, the problem is that people are so upset about this part of science like you know americans right now are are so upset about food all the time you know it, it honestly, i am too my dad has diabetes my sister it's like all we talk about yes it's all and, we talk about it's, it's, it's so we don't talk about black holes and astrophysics we talk about <laughs> diabetes yeah. and blood sugar I mean, I guess that's why we're upset about it. If we were, because we figured out Newtonian physics a while ago, so people don't walk around going like, "Oh, how does acceleration work?" Like they're not frustrated because <laughs> it's just basic science that we know now. But they're like, "Why do I have diabetes? Why does my stomach hurt? Why am I pooping bad?" You know, like because we don't, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> Nobody yeah. knows. It's so. No, frustrating. we totally have no idea. In fact, like one of the hot ideas is a poop transfer right now. Oh. Like if I'm pooping good and you poop bad, what if I give you poop? I <laughs> like that's a real idea. That's no, I a know. real thing. And I've heard that it's revolutionary. I've heard that people who get the poop transplants, uh, like literally they take poop out of one person's butt, put it in the other person's butt. And I believe yep. it colonizes their yep. their guts with microbes that help them. And that for some people, what I read once and you're telling me I should not believe what I read. But what I read was that for people with very serious forms of, I guess, Crohn's disease or similar diseases, that it was like a miracle cure. Yeah, and and for all we know, that may actually be like the real deal. We just need a lot more research. Yeah, I mean the whole gut flora thing is like such a. It's incredible that you know we're learning all these things about what are what's in our own guts that that affect our health. It's almost as though we're like exploring the uncharted regions of our own bodies. Like it, it's literally like our own bodies are the deep sea or the far off stars where we don't even know what's how our bodies work yet. It's really fascinating. Well, and go figure. There are like trillions of alien invaders living peacefully in your butt <laughs> and like what they do it definitely powerfully shapes your health and so like god talk about undiscovered country like we really have to explore our poop <laughs> can we talk really quickly we're, we're running out of time can we talk really quickly about um your work on sci-hub i know that's an yeah. article that you just published and can you just can yeah. you just summarize uh, i found this really fascinating so one of the crazier consequences of this massive growth of the like enterprise of science mm -hmm. is that publishing papers in journals has become a really big business. So like the biggest the biggest dog around is a company called Elsevier, mm -hmm. and they pull in billions of dollars. In fact, at one point recently, they were more profitable than Apple. So this wow. is this is big business. And yeah. these are just the people publishing the papers. Is it, these aren't the yep. researchers or the universities. This, these are the guys printing out the journals on 8x11 mm -hmm. paper. 
and, and yep. accepting them and reviewing them and all those other things. Yep. And you want to know why it's so profitable? Check out this uh, gig. Um, you have a free labor force. Okay. All these scientists. You don't pay them a dime. Uh, they go out and they find other scientists to read papers. And other scientists are like feeding you these papers and they really want badly for you to accept this paper. And no money has changed hands at this point, right? All this mm -hmm. work is happening for free. And then you publish the paper. And nowadays that's largely in the form of just putting it on the internet, right? which is almost free like, compared to like printing all these journals and trucking them You need a copy of Adobe Acrobat. Yep. Yep. And then this is the craziest part. The same people who did all this crap for free are your customers and they pay big money to be able to read their own work <laughs> that i'm not kidding that is the business model that is how you get a multi-billion dollar business right where all you do is basically use adobe acrobat right okay now to be fair to them there's a lot of work that actually does happen so yeah you know they have professional editors who are making sure the paper looks good and, and they're good sure journals they're... we're talking about the yeah. good part of the industry here these are the some of the best journals. journals in the world yes. yeah totally uh, and so the result but, of this system i know it's very expensive the result is that there's these that paper piracy is huge yeah totally you know and it's not just like in the developing world that that so what i wanted to know is like who is pirating all these papers so there's there's one huge pirate site that has emerged called sci-hub and you go there and you just put in like the name of the paper or what's called the doi code of mm -hmm. the paper and boom you've got the paper for free instantly wow and like normally you'd have to pay like 30 bucks 30 bucks for a paper and so for you can imagine like, yeah. So just like BitTorrent or like Pirate Bay, these things have just like exploded on the web. Like piracy is so easy and useful that it, it's like it's grown really fast. Right. So because, I actually I mean, this, yeah. is, this is work that people need to do their basic scientific work or that students need to do their papers, or their dissertations or this is the I mean, papers are the building blocks of science. If you can't read previous work, you can't do it at all. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Sci-Hub is the biggest in the world, and it's actually, it was created by and run, and it's still run by one person, hmm. Alexandra Elbakian. She's from Kazakhstan. She was a neuroscientist, and she just started the site, and she's on the run. She's kind of like the Edward Snowden of academic publishing, <laughs> uh, but she hasn't, she, no one knows exactly where she is. I think she's in Russia. And, and, is she, uh, and is she similar in that some would consider her a freedom fighter and others would, totally. would consider her a criminal? Wow. Totally. It's exactly like that. The industry calls her a crook and like all the scientists who care about this issue, you know, by and large, call her Robin Hood. Wow. She's she's like stealing all this work that is actually their work uh, <laughs> and giving it back to them for free. Because And so I, tr I tracked her down. I actually started working with her. Wow. And one of the things I wanted to know as a journalist was like, who is it exactly who's downloading all these papers? Like if you were to make a world map of, you know, who's downloading all this stuff. What does it look like? Is it is it like everyone in the poor countries only or what? And so I talked her into giving me just tons of data, which I then converted into a map. And the surprise was like, it's not just in the developing world. It is everywhere. Huh. Even people who clearly are at universities, like right. uh, a lot of the most intense downloading was happening actually from IP addresses of universities wow. in the United States who definitely have subscriptions to the papers. <laughs> they could be getting them for free. They've already paid for it. Sure. So it's then just... like... It's just easier that way. You got it. It's just so much easier because like uh, these companies, in order to keep this you know crazy billion dollar business model running, 
have to totally carefully control who has access. And so if you're just like a legitimate scientist at a university, you have to jump through all these hoops, you know, entering passwords and VPNing in and whatever in order to get access to the stuff you've already paid for. When alternatively, you could just like go to Sci-Hub and boom, you've got the paper. Yeah, it's the so, it, it's the example of well, I could go get the CD out of the library, but you know what? I know how BitTorrent works, so I'll just get it that way instead of ripping it. It's faster and easier. Totally, it's and pi- so that's piracy that's what's happening. The, the better solution than the than the private market. Yeah, totally. And it was it was also like as a as a bonus for me, I got to like actually look at like the world's pirate science reading list. Hmm. So, for example, there was there was someone in. Um, Benghazi, Libya, downloading papers about bridging the air gap between computers, which is a really cool technical problem. But like, by the way, the reason you want to know how to do that is to hack computers. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there was someone like on the border of North Korea reading about like the ecology of this weird, rare, uh, swampy ecosystem, riverine ecosystem that it shares between China and North Korea. I was like, oh, that's cool. It makes sense you would care about that. Someone in Greenland was reading about how, what's the best way to treat cancer in a population of Aboriginal people who are distributed over a huge land area. I was wow. like, oh, that makes total sense. That is probably a huge problem in Greenland. Yes. So it was, really, it was really fascinating to be able to kind of look over the shoulder of millions of scientists too. So, and it's all, it's all online now if you want to go and take a look. I mean, that, you know, that bolsters your argument that this sort of shadowy, illegal system of, you know, that, that the seedy underbelly of the scientific world speaks to how vibrant the ecology is and that it's a – in a similar way that the sham journals are, are sort of filling a need, uh, so is this obviously, like self-evidently. I mean, if I was a student scientist, I would feel no compunction about using uh, one of these services. Um, yeah. Do you think it's something something that like the industry will eventually be able to fill in the same way that, you know, no one's uh, some people are still using BitTorrent, but most people are like, oh, Spotify is better. Right. Like now that we have Spotify, we don't need to go on BitTorrent anymore. It's actually faster and more convenient. Finally, Mm. you know, the industry has given us what we wanted. Uh, Do you do you see something similar happening in science eventually? There's a lot of talk of like Spotifying science of like, (laughs) yeah, just basically making it cheaper, faster, better so that so that the industry could still make money. Yeah, Um, because I I do think it would actually be kind of a disaster if the entire academic publishing industry just collapsed like tomorrow. Yeah, it actually would be a disaster. Yes, it would. There's a lot of infrastructure that's been built to keep this machine going. Right. And, you know, that costs money. So you need to have some kind of business model. But um a lot of people are pinning their hopes on just getting rid of this uh, subscription like business model altogether. So rather than making readers pay to read what usually they've already paid for in tax dollars, like to support the research, um, you make essentially the the authors or their universities or funders pay up front to get published. And then it's open access. Mm. And anyone, anytime, forever after can read the work. You're not paying to um, read. You're paying to publish. Yeah. That so makes sense. That, I don't know if like that's going to take over the whole the whole show, but a lot of people hope it does. It is fascinating that yeah, it's like your tax dollars have paid for the research done by the University of California. Uh, you why should you have to pay just to read what it, the research was? Yeah, it's, it's the problem called double dipping. Mm. All right. Well, yeah. we have to we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time, John. This is really really fascinating. How can people find more of your work? You can go to my website, johnbohannon.org, which is like because .com was already taken by some photographer with the same name. <laughs> I have the same problem. I'm adamconover.net. Adamconover.com is a computer scientist in Illinois somewhere. 
<laughs> um, and by the way, I just want to say, we didn't talk about this at all. You are also a dancer, and there are some incredible videos online of you merging dance and science journalism, which I, I would have to say nobody has done before, uh, and people should really go check that out. Yeah, you can, you can see my TED Talk in which I'm explaining... Uh, quantum physics with a troupe of dancers live on a stage. Can you believe <laughs> that? You, I mean, if you want to, why do we do this interview over audio? It seems like such a waste. <laughs> I know we should have totally danced this. <laughs> well, thank you so much, John. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks again. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Adam. Well, thank you so much again to John Bohan for coming on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know I did. I had a great time. It was great for me, so I hope it was great for you, too. And that was Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Honestly, any of them would work. Even if you have, like, a Windows OS phone. I don't even know what runs on that. But probably, I'm almost certain... There's a podcast app for it, and you can listen to this on it. Maybe you're doing it right now. Uh, and don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. And again, guys, don't forget, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is coming back to True TV August 23rd, 14 big episodes for you. Going to be so great. I'm so excited for you to see them. And once again, you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. There was a lot to get through, but I did it. I'll see you guys in two weeks. Thanks again for listening. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.